The very purpose which draws us together here, building a peaceful world, will be thwarted if a situation is accepted in which a government intervenes across its borders in the affairs of another with military force in violation of the United Nations Charter. We have to ensure the proper conditions for self-determination so that the citizens of Crimea, well, it's a good thing that at least they remember there is such a thing as international law. We're of the view that UNSC was not the right forum for such issues and they should be discussed bilaterally between India and Pakistan. I've come here to tell the UN, you've got to, this is a test for the United Nations. You are the one who guaranteed the people of Kashmir the right of self-determination. Welcome to Article 38, the official podcast of the International Law Society at the School of Diplomacy and International Relations. My name is Amma Choudhury, and I'm speaking to you from the Armenian Mission to the United Nations in New York. With me is Alison Reiswick, Secretary of ILS. Thank you. I'm excited to be here and look forward to our discussion. On this episode, we will be exploring the Armenian position to Artsakh in the context of international law. I want to place an emphasis on Armenia because what Armenia may see as a justification through a treaty or a resolution for its position may differ from other peoples and nations. To present the Armenian position today, we are going to be speaking with Mr. David Kanazian. Mr. Kanazian holds a PhD in history and he joined the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Armenia in 2003. Afterwards, he became staff of the President of the Republic of Armenia from 2006 to 2008. In 2013, he then became Deputy Head of the Permanent Mission of Armenia to the OSCE and was appointed Head of the OSCE and Conventional Arms Control Division in 2017. Since July 2019, Mr. Kanyazian has been the Deputy Permanent Representative of the Republic of Armenia to the United Nations. We're excited to speak to you today, and we're excited to have you and hear your country's position. Thank you very much uh, for this opportunity to present the history, root causes, essence, and legal aspects, as well as current perspectives of the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict. I will first start with a short historical overview to provide you understanding on the historical context of the origins of the conflict. Artsakh, uh, as an integral part of historic Armenia, is mentioned in the works of ancient Greek authors such as Strabo, Pliny the Elder, uh, Plutarch and other ancient authors, uh, Greek and also Roman authors. Artsakh was the tenth province of the ancient kingdom of Greater Armenia. And in the, the etymology of the name Artsakh, it comes from the uh, very ancient times. In the uh, inscriptions of the Rartian kingdom, it is referred as Ortehini. Uh, in the Greek author's works, uh, sources, it is called Orchistene. Uh, Artsakh, under the Persian and Arab rule, was part of the Armenian province. Then, uh, in the medieval ages, it was part of the uh, Armenian kingdoms of Bagratid Armenia and Zakarid Armenia uh, from 9th uh, 11 to 11 and from 11th to 13th centuries. Afterwards, uh, Armenia, including Artsakh, were staged for, you know, different wars, clashes, various conquerors came to the region, the Mongol Empire, the Ottoman Empire, Persian Empire. But all the time, Artsakh, which has a very mountainous terrain, it was keeping, maintaining its same independent status with very strong principalities. The five Armenian principalities, or so-called Melik Domes of Hamsa, they reached the peak of their power in the first half of the 18th century. 
and in the mid 18th century the penetration of Turkic tribes to the region uh, started which led to clashes with the indigenous Armenian population. Afterwards, in more modern times, in 1813, uh, Artsakh becomes part of the uh, Russian Empire under the Treaty of Kurdistan of 1813. It becomes part of the Russian Empire alongside with other uh, northeastern provinces of Armenia. The origins of the conflict itself, they date back to the period with, uh, after the First World War, when after the war, the collapse of the Russian Empire took place. And uh, during 18, uh, 1918 and 1920, the Transcaucasian Republics appeared. Armenia, Georgia and the Democratic Republic of Azerbaijan, which appeared in, on the world map for the first time. Uh, making use of the presence of the Ottoman army in the region, uh, Azerbaijan uh, made an attempt to incorporate Nagorno-Karabakh into its borders. But at the time being, the sole power in Nagorno-Karabakh was exercised by the assemblies of Armenians of Karabakh and the National Council elected by them. And they rejected these uh, ultimatums presented by the Ottoman army and the government of Azerbaijan. In 1919, in August 15. The Assembly of Armenians of Nagorno-Karabakh signed a provisional agreement with the government of Azerbaijan to avoid conflict. And according to this agreement, the sides agreed that the problem of Karabakh must be considered and finally resolved at the Paris Peace Conference. This is another fact showing, demonstrating that Karabakh was a distinct political entity in the region. So we can see that during the initial phase of the creation and determination of the borders of this republics South Caucasus, Nagorno-Karabakh had never been an integral part of the Democratic Republic of Azerbaijan, rather it was a disputed territory. As for the position of International Committee on the issue, uh, I would like to refer to the uh, judgment of the League of Nations on December 1, 1920. The League of Nations, uh, having examined the request for admission of the Republic of Azerbaijan, arrived at the following conclusions. Within the Article 1 of the Covenant of the League of Nations, Azerbaijan could not be regarded as the Euro a full self-governing state as it had not been recognized the Euro by any member of the League of Nations. Moreover, it was stated that the territory of the Republic, I quote, occupying a superficial area of 40,000 square miles, appears to have never formally constituted a state but has always been included in larger groups such as the Mongol or Persian and since 1813 the Russian Empire. The name Azerbaijan which has been chosen for the new republic is also that of a neighboring Persian province. Furthermore the ability end of quotation. Furthermore the ability of the government of Azerbaijan was questioned as to whether it could undertake international obligations and give guarantees required by the membership of the League of Nations. And another important quotation, I quote, it is difficult to ascertain the exact limits of the territory within which the government of Azerbaijan exercises its authority. Owing to the disputes with neighboring states concerning its frontiers, it is not possible to determine precisely the present frontiers of Azerbaijan. End of quotation. In 1920, the Soviet regime was established first in Azerbaijan, in May and then in uh, Armenia in December, beginning of December. And uh, the uh, Soviet Azerbaijan made a declaration 
recognizing territories over which Azerbaijan had claims, including Nagorno-Karabakh, as inseparable parts of Armenia. Based on the statement of Soviet Azerbaijan, government of Armenia, Soviet Armenia, also declared Nagorno-Karabakh as its integral part. On July 4, 1921, the Caucasian Bureau of the Communist Party of Russia convened a plenary session during which the fact that Nagorno-Karabakh is part of the Armenian SSR was reconfirmed. However, under the dictate and the direct interference of Joseph Stalin, on the night of July 5, the decision of the previous day was reviewed and the, uh, another decision was forced to incorporate Nagorno-Karabakh as autonomous region in the borders of Azerbaijan. This is just a short overview to present to you the origins of the conflict which date back at least a century uh, ago. Well, thank you for that. I'm glad that you gave us a lot of a historical perspective. So if you can tell us some of the relevant facts from his history that lead to the situation that we have today, but where does it arise? And, and my, now you can begin at whatever period that you think would be best. My understanding would be somewhere along the Soviet Union would be a good place. Uh, thank you. Thank you for the question. The modern period of the conflict starts in 19, late 1980s when the policy of perestroika was declared by the Soviet leadership, which created a conducive environment for the not only people of Nagorno-Karabakh, but other oppressed people in the Soviet Union to pursue their inalienable political and civilian rights. During the Soviet period, the Nagorno-Karabakh region, autonomous region, was heavily discriminated by the Soviet Azerbaijan with violation of the social, economic, cultural rights, misappropriation of the Armenian religious and cultural heritage. So once the, this policy of perestroika was declared, the people felt free to come up and to express their dissent, their protest uh, in regard to such a policy. And uh, uh, just to give you another uh, example on how, how, how the situation was during the Soviet rule, uh, I'd like to stress that the leadership of the Soviet Azerbaijan was trying to change the demographic picture of the region by uh, implanting uh, Azerbaijani population and creating all the conditions to limit the breadth, the, the growth of the uh, indigenous Armenian population. However, uh, even despite all these efforts, by the end of 1980s, the Armenian population of Nagorno-Karabakh was uh, almost 77 76.9% to be more exact. Now, this is regarding the demographic makeup of the region. Okay, so before we get into more of the dispute, there's ideas in self-determination and human rights that are at play here in this dispute. And so I was hoping that you could be able to expand a little bit more about that before we get into the specifics. I would like to stress that it is the consistent position of Armenia, regardless of this context, that the principle of self-determination is, is an underlying principle, a purpose of the reflected in the UN Charter and it's a peremptory norm of international law and as such it cannot be limited to a certain periods of time. It has no time limitations and it is uh, reflected not only in the UN Charter but also the 1970 Declaration on the principles governing the interstate relations. But when it comes to the international human rights law, it is reflected in the legally binding covenants on the 
civil and political rights and on the economic, social and cultural rights. And uh, owing to this principle, uh, nowadays we have a membership of the United Nations, uh, 193 nations, owing to the progressive implementation of this principle, because uh, as you know, uh, in the, uh, during the birth of the United Nations, we had three times less uh, member states. When it comes to Nagorno-Karabakh in particular, the right to self-determination of Nagorno-Karabakh was also reflected in the domestic legislation of the Soviet Union, because when a policy of perestroika created possibilities for the uh, Union republics, autonomous republics and autonomous regions to pursue their civilian and political rights, there was uh, uh, such a possibility also uh, for the Nagorno-Karabakh Autonomous Region. I will refer to the Soviet law of April uh, 3, 1990 on the procedures of the resolution of problems on the secession of a Union Republic from the USSR, which, I quote, provided that the secession of a Soviet Republic from the USSR allows an autonomous region within the territory of the same Republic to trigger its own process of independence. In fact, uh, the law defined the legal scope for the possible dissolution of the USSR. And accordingly, the, the people of Nagorno-Karabakh pursued their peaceful aspirations in a very legitimate manner, which was fully in line not only with the domestic legislation, but also with the international law. Now, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, you have a situation where the territory Artsakh or Nagorno-Karabakh, which has a large ethnic Armenian population, finds itself in Azerbaijani territory. Can you explain the anxiety this caused and the conflict that resulted from it? And I'm referring to the first Nagorno-Karabakh war beginning in 1988. Thank you. Thank you for the question. The underlying causes of the conflict are in the uh, systematic discrimination of the Armenian population of, uh, in Azerbaijan and the violation of its uh, civilian, political, economic, social and cultural rights. Uh, back in 1988, the um, Nagorno-Karabakh authorities made a peaceful appeal to the Supreme Councils of Azerbaijan and Armenia to incorporate Nagorno-Karabakh Autonomous Region in the, within the borders of Armenia. This was rejected by Azerbaijan, accepted by uh, Soviet Armenia, and as I stressed earlier, it was fully in line with the domestic legislation of the Soviet Union. To these peaceful aspirations of the people of Nagorno-Karabakh, the Azerbaijani authorities responded by brutal force. Namely, in 1988, February of 1988, the atrocities of Armenian population were organized in a city, a city of Sumgait, which is not very far from the capital Baku. And uh, it was uh, very outrageous for the time, of, for that period. Of course, the Soviet Union was considered as a state uh, where there exists a brotherhood between the nations. And all of a sudden, imagine you wake up and your neighbor, next door neighbor, uh, is killing your family, taking your property and expelling the population from, from, uh, from the city. These atrocities were organized by the authorities of Soviet Azerbaijan and with the connivance of the law enforcement agencies. The massacres uh, resulted in killing of 
hundreds of people in Sumgait, uh, afterwards in the capital of Baku, Kirovabad, uh, Shamkhor and other cities of Azerbaijan. The European Parliament in 1988, it adopted a resolution condemning these massacres. In fact, these atrocities uh, in Sumgait, they were referred and known as the first identity-based crime after the end of the Second World War in Europe, because it was unprecedented for, the, for Europe after, after the end of the Second World War. These massacres led to forced displacement of more than 400,000 Armenians from Azerbaijan. And of course, next uh, was supposed to be uh, Nagorno-Karabakh. With the uh, support of the uh, Soviet internal forces, the Azerbaijani authorities organized forced displacement of the um, ethnic cleansing of the uh, population of Shahumyan region which was not part of the Gorodarabakh Autonomous Region, but had a compact Armenian population. The situation was very drastic because the people of Nagorno-Karabakh were on the verge of the total extermination. The Azerbaijani authorities were pursuing a, a policy of um, final solution of this issue by uh, simply uh, totally expelling or, or killing the, the whole population. However, uh, owing to the uh, self-defense of the uh, local population, the war, which was initially mainly dominated by the Azerbaijani side, the Azerbaijani forces, in 1998, two uh, breakthrough took place. The Armenian forces, uh, the local forces, uh, managed to expel the Azerbaijani army from the territory of the autonomous region. And uh, eventually, in 1994, uh, a ceasefire agreement was signed, a trilateral ceasefire agreement between Nagorno-Karabakh, Armenia and Azerbaijan in Bishkek. But before going to, uh, to this part, I'd like to stress that in September 1991, Nagorno-Karabakh declared its independence, which was followed by a referendum in December 1991, organized uh, with the presence of uh, international observers, uh, international media, and this referendum was fully in line with the domestic legislation of the USSR and the international law, as I stressed, the Soviet laws allowed the autonomous regions to define their own future in case the Union Republic wanted to secede from the, from the Soviet Union. The people of Nagorno-Karabakh made use of this right, inalienable right. So by 1994, the war is coming to an end, but there are important Security Council resolutions that occur during the time that it is going on. That is Security Council Resolutions 822, 853, 874, and 884. Could you please go over these resolutions and go over the, the Armenian position on them? These resolutions were adopted in uh, 1993 uh, during the period of active hostilities, uh, the, the armed conflict itself. And the primary requirement of these resolutions was the uh, immediate cessation of the hostilities with the view to create possibilities for the international mediators to do their work. Because by that time, in 1992, the um, CSC Conference on Security and Cooperation in Europe. The, the, the participating states of CSC at their additional meeting in Helsinki had decided to create a mediation format which would be dealing with the resolution of the conflict, the so-called uh, Minsk Group. A decision was made to convene a conference in Minsk which would um, deal with the solution of the conflict. 
And of course, naturally, any peace efforts required a cessation of the hostilities. And by the way, a very important observation, the elected representatives of Tamburo-Karabakh were invited to participate in this conference. Apart from the main requirement of a cessation of hostilities, the resolutions also called to refrain from any action that would obstruct a peaceful resolution to the conflict. Uh, another requirement was to restore economic, transport and energy links in the region, also to enable full and unimpeded humanitarian access to the affected population. Unfortunately, the Azerbaijani side violated and up to date continues to violate these requirements of the resolutions because, and I will come to it later on, to now the uh, transportation links in the region have not been restored. Armenia is uh, suffering from the blockade. And uh, second, the affected population in Nagorno-Karabakh is isolated from the international community. It, it, is, it is in need of, dire need of humanitarian assistance which is uh, abstracted and politicized by Azerbaijan. And one last point regarding these resolutions. The Security Council uh, endorsed and fully supported the efforts of the OEC Minsk group to proceed with the peaceful settlement of the conflict. It didn't set any limitations for the self-determination of the people of Nagorno-Karabakh. It had to be decided during the negotiations under, under the auspices of the OEC Minsk group. So you've already mentioned the Bishik Protocol, and I want to move back to that because you said you'd go on further explain that. So the conclusion of the conflict, it was decided in 1994 by a ceasefire agreement, and this was the ceasefire agreement. It was brokered by the Russians, but also by the French and the US. I want you to go and explain from your understanding of the agreement what it meant for the reality on the ground. What was in the agreement and what did it look like on the ground? The Bishkek Protocol was signed on May 12 um, between three parties, uh, Nagorno-Karabakh, Armenia and Azerbaijan. It was followed by another agreement on strengthening the ceasefire in uh, February of 1995. Uh, this uh, important observation is that these ceasefire agreements didn't have any time limitations. Uh, the ceasefire agreements paved the way to proceed with the peaceful settlement of the conflict. However, uh, and, and uh, parallel to this, um, the mediation format, uh, the, the eventual shape of the mediation format was, was defined by the OEC because in, in Budapest uh, summit of 1994, the OEC or the OEC um, participating states decided that the, there will be co-chairmanship of the Minsk group, which will do the daily work. It will coordinate the mediation efforts. And uh, by 1997, the three co-chair countries, namely France, uh, Russian Federation and the United States, uh, started to uh, spearhead the negotiation. 1994 was positive in this regard because uh, for small societies such as Azerbaijan, Nagorno-Karabakh, Armenia, human casualties had deepened the gap between the societies and uh, time was needed to heal the wounds, to address the grievances, to restore the economic life in the region and uh, slowly to start the negotiation process by restoring confidence and trust between the societies. Armenia and Nagorno-Karabakh were fully committed to, to negotiations, to peaceful settlement of the conflict 
and the, the demonstration of this was constant pushing for confidence-building measures between Nagorno-Karabakh, Armenia, and uh, Azerbaijan. It could be military confidence-building measures such as withdrawal of snipers, consolidation of the ceasefire regime, economic confidence-building measures as uh, for instance, water governance of cross-border waters, cross-border trade, people-to-people contacts because they were ready to proceed with people-to-people contacts, exchanges of journalists. The history knows many such instances how, how these people-to-people contacts have eventually led to reconciliation uh, between antagonists, you know, centuries-old antagonists. However, Azerbaijan's narrative was uh, totally different. By agreeing to engage within the framework of the OAC Minsk co-chairmanship, Azerbaijan made use of this time to, to prepare for the next war. Azerbaijan rejected any confidence-building measures proposed by the co-chair countries, by Armenia, by Nagorno-Karabakh. Azerbaijan rejected any people-to-people contact. Just to give you an example, he's the only country uh, in the OAC region which stretches from Makover to Vladivostok. In fact, the global north, Euro-Atlantic and Eurasian region. It is the only country of this region which is denying the entrance to Azerbaijan on the basis of ethnic origin. Uh, for any Armenians, they can be US citizens, they can be Irish citizens, Russian citizens. If they are Armenians, if they are Armenian surname, have Armenian surnames, they are not allowed to enter Azerbaijan. Up to now, such a policy made impossible creating environment conducive for a peaceful settlement because the societies didn't have opportunity to interact. No contacts uh, between young people, between civil society, uh, between academicians, journalists, no uh, any trade contacts, uh, no military confidence building measures, and even more, after signing the ceasefire agreement, uh, policy of indoctrination of the society starting from the kids from the school decks uh, starts in Azerbaijan. If you open their school books, textbooks, you will see the example of hateful rhetoric towards Armenians, making, uh, naming Armenians, portraying them as enemy number one for, for Azerbaijan, as fascists, as people who have no right uh, to, to, to live in their country, as terrorists, pursuing territorial claims, not to Nagorno-Karabakh only, but also to Armenia, even its capital, naming uh, Yerevan, uh, Armenia, the Lake Sevan, as, as parts of uh, Azerbaijan. Hate speech at the public level, at the highest level of public officials. Nowadays, with the uh, spread of social networks, uh, this hate rhetoric has become more systematic. You can uh, open the uh, links, uh, social networks of, of uh, the government, of the public officials, of uh, influential people, um, opinion makers of Azerbaijan society and see uh, how strong is this hate speech, how systematic it is. And we arrived at a situation when the society was growing without uh, zero contacts with the Armenian society, with Nagorno-Karabakh. And with uh, brainwashing, indoctrination, uh, which gave its results. In 2004, an Armenian officer, Gurgen Markarian, 
was participating in language courses in Budapest, in, 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 uh, in NATO language courses. He was brutally killed while he was asleep by his fellow, an Azerbaijani officer, who was participating in the same training. The guy had killed him by axe when he was asleep, and he was uh, sentenced to life sentence in, in, Nagorod, in, in, in Budapest, in Hungary. Afterwards, he was released after eight years under unknown circumstances. He was supposed to serve his term, his prison in, in, in Azerbaijan, but immediately after arriving to Baku, he was released. He, was, he got his salary for these eight years. He got awards and he was glorified by the president of Azerbaijan as a national hero. So imagine a national hero is the one who is killing a sleeping person on, on the basis of ethnic uh, hatred. Uh, this was the face of the society back then. And uh, such situations increased the threat perception of the people of Nagorno-Karabakh. They, they were demonstrating once again that under the rule of Azerbaijan, physical security, the survival of the Nagorno-Karabakh people is simply impossible because they are not considered as human beings. Uh, their existence, their very existence in their uh, ancestral homelands is challenged and denied by Azerbaijani authorities. Unfortunately, this was the situation which we were facing throughout the 1990s, uh, early 2000s, up until the war of 2020. Another important observation for you, this situation, this policy by Azerbaijan um, made uh, impossible efficient work of the OEC Minsk co-chairmanship. Minsk co-chairs were regularly blamed by the Azerbaijani side for their inefficiency, for failing to achieve a sustainable settlement of the conflict. But uh, when you are preparing your society for a war, you cannot expect uh, um, efficient work by the uh, co-chairs. When you are using this uh, negotiation process simply as a smoke screen, to prepare for a war, uh, of course, the negotiations will be deemed to failure, even despite the constructive engagement of the other two sides, uh, Nagorno-Karabakh and Armenia, which happened, in fact. It will be also interesting for you to know that Azerbaijan was constantly trying to introduce a religious dimension to the conflict by portraying Armenians as, as people who are hating uh, Islam, Muslim, uh, culture, Muslim civilization. They were abusing their membership of the Organization of Islamic Cooperation to pursue resolutions condemning Armenia, portraying the conflict as an interstate conflict, whereas one country has occupied Muslim territories, you know, uh, or territories of a Muslim state, uh, which was not the case. Armenians have interacted with the Muslim world since the very birth of the Arab Caliphate in the 7th century. Since the time of Khalifs Rashidun, the first four Khalifs, Khalifs Rashidun, we have been engaged, uh, interacted with the Muslim civilization uh, from the 7th century. Uh, we are sharing, we are the only Christian country sharing a common border with the Islamic Republic of Iran and our uh, cultural heritage. Uh, religious heritage is fully preserved in Iran and vice versa. If you visit Armenia, Yerevan, you can see very well preserved Muslim monuments.
including a mosque, a blue mosque in the very center of the city. And our excellent relations with the most uh, overwhelming majority of the Muslim countries, Arab countries, Iran, ASEAN, uh, Muslim states, they are a demonstration that this attempt to propagate, to portray Armenians as, as uh, a nation which is hating Muslims uh, did not find any ground. It, is, it was unsubstantiated. After the ceasefire, was there a sense of the conflict not being resolved but instead prolonged? Since 1994 and up until the events of the fall of 2020, the conflict in the eyes of the international community seemed to have been neglected. Yes, as, as I referred earlier, um, you know, the reasons for the protracted, protracted conflict prolongation of the peaceful settlement uh, were in the position of Azerbaijan, who was pursuing a forceful resolution to the conflict. There were objective circumstances uh, for such a position, because as an oil exporting country, it had vast resources. In early 2000, uh, 2000s, Azerbaijan, uh, Azerbaijan's oil profits were turned into a military build-up, a manifold increase of uh, military budget for 20-30 times. In fact, they were praising themselves that the military budget of Azerbaijan is more than the overall budget of Armenia. Azerbaijan started to quickly acquire uh, offensive weapons, heavy weapons, in violation of its legally binding obligations under the Treaty on Conventional Armed Forces in Europe, which established certain limits for the offensive heavy weapons tanks, armored vehicles, uh, airplanes, tank helicopters, and, and artillery. Azerbaijan violated all these uh, categories, minimum for two or three times, and it was in a very intensive manner preparing for a new war under the disguise of the negotiations. Meantime, uh, Azerbaijan was uh, engaging in a kind of mediation shopping by um, abusing uh, different platforms, international platforms. I mentioned the Organization of Islamic Cooperation. Another platform uh, was the non-aligned movement. Azerbaijan was misusing it, its membership of the movement to, to promote its conflict narrative that the conflict is an, in fact an interstate, uh, denying the very existence of, uh, of the Nagorno-Karabakh which was party to the conflict as also recognized by the Security Council resolutions which were referring to the local Armenian forces, recognizing them as party to the conflict. And as I referred to uh, the OEC documents, which were making references to the elected representatives of Nagorno-Karabakh. What was on the other side? On the other side, you could see a democratic state building in Nagorno-Karabakh, promotion of good governance, of the human rights and fundamental freedoms. The elections, when it comes to democracy, rule of law, and human rights, the situation in Azerbaijan and Nagorno-Karabakh was incomparable. On one side, in Azerbaijan, we could see total absence of independent civil society, free media, total absence of any dissenting voices to the official government narrative. But on this side, you could see democratic elections with the participation of independent observers, change of the governance, change of the presidents, uh, independent parliament, 
which had opposition. But to give you an example, the, the, the power shift in Azerbaijan was within the limits of one family, uh, from father Haydar Ali to the son, and then from the son to, to uh, the wife, because uh, she became uh, uh, the first vice president of, of Azerbaijan. Uh, whatever was the political life was concentrated within the limits of one family. Whereas uh, all the dissenting voices which were calling for reconciliation, for confidence building, for people-to-people contacts, these dissenting voices were silenced. A number of journalists, human rights defenders were expelled, arrested in, in Azerbaijan. And this environment led to a prolongation of the peaceful settlement because Azerbaijan was not inclined to compromise solution which would take into account the interests and the grievances of all the sides. It was trying to impose unilateral solution on the basis of its unlimited oil profits by imposing uh, resolutions in, in different forums, including by bribery of the foreign public officials. One such case was the bribery of uh, members of the PASA uh, and the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe, which adopted some resolutions regarding the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict. And eventually, it was revealed that there were cases of corruption of the members of the Parliamentary Assembly, including when it comes to resolutions criticizing internal situation in Azerbaijan, violation of human rights. To neutralize this assembly, to neutralize criticism coming from the assembly in regard to the human rights situation in Azerbaijan, in regard to Nagorno-Karabakh, Azerbaijan was heavily bribing public officials and, meantime, preparing for a war uh, by, by accumulating heavy weaponry and, uh, in the region, which, which can be also found in the uh, documents of the related to the CFE Treaty. Uh, in the CIPRI, a Swedish-based institute which is dealing with the analysis of the military situation in the region. Um, so, so you've discussed about the prolonged conflict and how it was neglected. I want to cover some of the potential things that could have made sure that it wasn't neglected, some of the proposals that were brought forward. And I want to fast forward to 2007, where the OSCE propositions were created in 2007 when Azerbaijan and Armenia met in Madrid. The meeting leads to the Madrid principles. There were six principles laid out. The first one, that Azerbaijan, Azerbaijani control to be established over the seven districts around Nagorno-Karabakh. The second, an interim status of Nagorno-Karabakh that would provide guarantees for security and self-governance. The third, a corridor linking it with Armenia. The fourth, a legally binding expression of will of the population to determine its final legal status. The fifth, the return of all internally displaced persons. And the sixth, the implementation of a peacekeeping operation. I would like you to explain your thoughts on that. Thank you. The basic principles and their elements were first published in 2009 in Deauville. Uh, they were annexed to the uh, statement, joint statement of the leaders of the co-chair countries, France, Russian Federation, United States. You referred to these elements, and the basic principles were non-use of force, territorial integrity, and self-determination of peoples. These elements which you referred to were based on these three principles. In their statement in Aquila, the, the co-chair countries um, 
expressed their commitment to, to support the leaders of Armenia and Azerbaijan as they finalized these basic principles for settlement of the conflict. And they urged both leaders to resolve their remaining differences and to finalize the agreement. The endorsement of these basic principles was supposed to be the first step to pave the way for, for, for the uh, drafting of the peace agreement itself. Uh, later on, we had the statements of the co-chair countries in Muskoka in 2010, Deauville 2011, Los Cabos 2012, and Enniskillen in 2013, in which they reaffirmed their commitment to the exclusively peaceful settlement of the conflict. And uh, what were the other very important messages from their side? So they believed that there is no Peace, uh, there is no forceful solution to the conflict, that use of force will not solve. Another important message was that the parties to the conflict should not pursue a selective approach to these principles and the elements. They should be seen as an integrated whole, and any attempt to select some elements over the others would make it impossible to, to achieve a solution. Uh, Armenia was fully sharing this approach by the mediators as a country committed to compromise solution. Uh, we fully understood that uh, there should be a balance of interests and in our public statements we were referring to all these three principles, to all the elements, whereas Azerbaijan was referring to only one principle, principle of territorial integrity. There was a pick-and-choose approach by their side. As it as comes for the elements, they were picking on the element on return of the territories surrounding Nagorno-Karabakh and return of uh, all the internally displaced persons and refugees to their homes, whereas they were completely neglecting the other very important principles and elements. And um, contemplating your next question, I'd like to stress that after years of negotiations and numerous summits, high-level summits, as well as dozens of meetings at the level of foreign ministers, we arrived at uh, the Kazan summit in 2011. We were, we were in a situation where at the last moment, Azerbaijan introduces a dozens of amendments to the uh, document which was prepared for signing, which made impossible signing of the document. And in fact, uh, Kazan summit failed. All these attempts of the co-chairs to promote Madrid principles, to arrive at a solution on the basis of these principles failed. To give you an understanding on what was the situation on the ground, by 2011, Azerbaijan had manifold increase, increased its military forces. It was becoming more and more confident that uh, eventually it will solve the problem by the use of force. Uh, therefore, its constructive engagement in the process was declined. Fortunately, after 2011, after Kazan summit, we see gradual growth of the military provocations alongside the line of contact with the Nagorno-Karabakh and on the state border. You know, this could be uh, reconnaissance groups, sniper fire, targeting civilian population while conducting agricultural works advancing positions and each and every casualty from both sides was deepening the gap even more it was creating a perception that the conflict cannot be solved by by the peaceful means this is what azerbaijan was trying to convince its society which was not the case Nagorno-Karabakh authorities and armenia was ready were ready for for 
very hard compromises. However, on the other side, we had a situation that take it or leave it. Take my position or leave it, because I will go to war, which eventually happened. Mm -hmm. um, so this uh, finally brings us to the clashes uh, in the summer of 2021 and the subsequent war in the fall of 2021. In November of 2021, Azerbaijan launches a military operation in the region and in short time holds large swaths of territory in the disputed region. The hostilities are then brought to an end by a Russian-backed deal, which Armenia and Azerbaijan agree to, that sees Russian peacekeepers along with some Turkish peacekeepers in the region. How do, how do these events take place starting in the summer all the way to the current situation? And what is the position of your government uh, now considering uh, where the territories are? The um, large-scale escalation in 2020 was preceded by another uh, escalation of a lower scale uh, in 2016, the for the April war, which was a heavy blow for the peace process because the first victim of the, this war was the peace process itself, the efforts of the co-chairs. These four days intensive hostilities were accompanied by uh, atrocity crimes of the civilian population of Agorgarbach, by uh, torture and premeditated murders of the uh, civilians and also uh, military personnel. Uh, luckily, at that period, the co-chairs managed to put an end to the hostilities and uh, agreements were reached in Vienna and St. Petersburg, a letter reconfirmed in, in Geneva that a mechanism to investigate the ceasefire violations will be created and also the number of international monitors will be expanded. These were important elements in order to allow another outbreak of the hostility. Azerbaijan rejected both, uh, both these uh, proposals, agreements in fact. These were agreements, not just proposals. It, it watered down and rejected the agreement on expansion of the number of international monitors because of course naturally they were an obstacle for, for for initiating another uh, large-scale hostilities. And it rejected a uh, creation of investigative mechanism which would finger-point the party responsible for a concrete ceasefire violation. They were not interested in uh, establishing who is the party which is constantly violating the ceasefire. They were not interested in having a verification mechanism in that regard. And of course, with very limited international presence on the ground, they were able to continue their provocations, blame game, you know, responsibility on us. And eventually, we arrived at this large-scale operation in September 2020. Why in 2020? If you recall, it was the period of global pandemic, mm -hmm. when the whole international committee was focused on addressing the uh, humanitarian, economic, social, consequences of the pandemic, when uh, many international conferences were delayed. The international monitors working in Nagorno-Karabakh could not pursue their work further because of, again, a lockout. The Minsk co-chairs could not organize uh, in-person meetings because, again, of the pandemic. And Azerbaijan utilized the focus of the international community on the pandemic to unleash the war. They believed that the situation is very conducive to finally solve the problem by the use of force. On 27 September, they unleashed large-scale aggression, which was supported, fully supported by Turkey, and uh, which was involving international mercenaries and foreign terrorist fighters. Here, I would like to elaborate a bit about the role of Turkey. Being a member of the OEC Minsk group, 
and trying to portray itself as a mediator. In fact, Turkey was part of the problem, not of the solution, because it was fully backing Azerbaijan, fully supporting Azerbaijani narrative. It had blockaded that up to now it is continuing to impose land blockade on Armenia. Uh, we have no diplomatic relations. And of course, such an imbalanced approach, it could not play any positive role in, in, in the peaceful settlement. On the contrary, one of the reasons of the escalation where tensions in the region were uh, large-scale uh, joint exercises, military exercises organized by Turkey and Azerbaijan on a regular basis. And one of these exercises, under the cover of one of these exercises in the summer of 2020, Turkey relocated forces to Azerbaijan to start the war, to start the offensive. They concentrated the forces under the disguise of uh, conducted military uh, exercises. Turkey was behind the organization, recruit, recruitment, financing of movement of these foreign terrorist fighters from northern Syria to Azerbaijan and to the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict zone. I will give you the example of the misconduct by the Turkey. The United Nations Working Group on the Use of Mercenaries. In its statement, it expressed concern over the large-scale recruitment and transfer of foreign mercenaries from Syria that are, I quote, allegedly affiliated with armed groups and individuals that, in some cases, have been accused of war crimes and serious human rights abuses during the conflict in Syria. These, these foreign terrorist fighters were from Al-Nusra Front, Sultan Murad, Al-Hamza and other Turkish-backed uh, terrorist organizations in, in the northern territories of Syria. And it was another unprecedented uh, thing for the region and for Europe per se, because this was the first case when the foreign terrorist fighters, terrorist fighters were relocated to the region, to a conflict zone, to participate in hostilities. The large-scale offensive of Azerbaijan, which lasted for 44 days, it was a demonstration of the worst things which the humankind could do to, to, to itself because it was accompanied with barbaric crimes, torture, inhuman treatment, uh, beheadings, ISIL-style, you know, crimes in, 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 in Nagorno-Karabakh. It was a... It was shocking to see uh, such a level of hatred because, you know, you can, of course, uh, see the reports of international organizations warning about the situation in, in Azerbaijan, but when you see it by your own eyes, it is totally different. Uh, Human Rights Watch, other international organizations, human rights organizations, they condemned these uh, acts, these war crimes, atrocities, extrajudicial killings of prisoners of wars and of war and, and civilian hostages. In the course of the war, the international community, the Minsk Group co-chairs, the United Nations were calling for immediate cessation of the hostilities and for restoring the dialogue. But Azerbaijan made full use of the pandemic, of the international environment of the time being, and pursued forceful solution policy up to the end. And the 9 November trilateral statement of the of Armenia, Russian Federation, and Azerbaijan put an end to the active hostilities. And the Russian peacekeeping forces were deployed in the region, which was very important to, to protect the physical security of the population and to return the refugees, 90,000 people, 88% of whom were uh, children 
and uh, women were expelled from the region. They returned, and now we have 120,000 population in, in uh, Nagorno-Karabakh. Uh, many uh, could not return back because their, their cities, villages are under Azerbaijani occupation. However, we are in a situation that we should again pursue peaceful solution. And Armenia is fully committed. We have expressed our support to the efforts of the Minsko co-chairs. We stand ready to continue the negotiation and we stand ready to address all the issues related to the conflict, including the issues of humanitarian access, protection of heritage, return of the prisoners of war. In fact, we returned all the Azerbaijani prisoners of war. However, we still have 38 prisoners of war in Azerbaijani custody, against whom criminal charges were brought in violation of the international humanitarian law. Uh, we have a situation when Azerbaijan is uh, politicizing humanitarian access of the international community to Nagorno-Karabakh. Azerbaijan has now embarked on a new phase of destruction of the Armenian religious and cultural heritage in, in Artsakh. The first step is declaring them as so-called Al Albanian monuments. Albania was a political entity which existed in early medieval ages in the north part of Azerbaijan. They are uh, unable to present Christian monuments as Azerbaijani, they are portraying them as Albanian. And the next step is the destruction. Uh, they have the experience of destructing, eliminating Armenian monuments in Nakhichevan, when thousands of uh, Armenian cross stones, Hachkars, were bulldozed, churches were razed to the ground. Nowadays, we see the same situation in, in the occupied territories of Nagorno-Karabakh. Uh, another outrageous example of uh, anti-Armenian hatred and rhetoric is uh, the opening of so-called military trophy park in, in Baku by the leader of Azerbaijan, which is depicting uh, helmets, personal belongings of the fallen soldiers, Armenian soldiers. Their mannequins portraying them in a very kind of caricature manner, you know. Of course, uh, Armenia is undertaking all the efforts to, to protect the human rights of people of Nagorno-Karabakh. We are trying to engage the United Nations, its specialized agencies, UNESCO, in conducting assessment missions in Nagorno-Karabakh, in assessing the situation of human rights, humanitarian needs, conducting inventory of the religious cultural monuments. We have used the ICJ to, to raise the matter of the anti-Armenian hatred. International Court of Justice in December uh, 2021, it, it uh, affirmed the, the well-founded nature of Armenia's request against Azerbaijan on the violation of the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Racial Discrimination and ordered that Azerbaijan record take all necessary measures to prevent the incitement and promotion of racial hatred and discrimination, including by its officials and public institutions. Another important order was to protect from violence and bodily harm all persons captured in relation to the 2020 conflict who remain in detention and ensure their security and equality before the law. And in regard to the preservation of cultural heritage, the court ordered Azerbaijan to take all necessary measures to prevent and punish acts of vandalism and desecration affecting Armenian cultural heritage, including but not limited to the churches, other places of worship, monuments, landmarks, 
cemetery and artifacts. We have a situation when the international legal institutions, international organizations are engaged to address the consequences of the conflict. And on the other hand, the state, which is simply uh, obstructing engagement of the international organizations to monitor and to verify compliance with the international human rights law and international humanitarian law. This is where we stand for the time being. Azerbaijan is also trying to further pursue its policy of imposing unilateral solutions to the problems by, by initiating military provocations against Armenia proper. Since last year, yeah, they have attacked the territory of Armenia proper in several directions of the state border and have occupied certain portions of the border regions of Armenia. As for Nagorno-Karabakh, Azerbaijan is trying to disrupt the normal life in, in the region by, by creating conditions which are uh, in which normal life is simply impossible. Uh, last month they uh, disrupted the gas supply to Nagorno-Karabakh. Then they started exerting psychological pressure on the uh, population by using microphones. They were calling the um, population of the border villages to leave their uh, homes not to conduct any agricultural works and simply to leave. A Armenian language, they were calling the people to leave their homes. Just like was the case with the pandemic nowadays, Azerbaijan is making use of the conflict in Ukraine. Uh, when the whole attention of the international community is focused on this conflict, this evolving security crisis in Europe is, is used by them to pursue their narrative, to continue exerting pressure on the population to violate their fundamental human rights, including the right to life and the right to health, and to uh, forcefully expel the remaining population from this small portion of land, is now under the, the security of which is now ensured by the Russian peacekeeping forces. We, we appreciate the engagement of the Russian peacekeepers. They are doing an important work. The Minsk group co-chair countries, France, United States and Russia, they are at political level, they are doing important work trying to persuade Azerbaijan to come back at the negotiation table uh, because everybody understands that use of force cannot solve the conflict. The, the underlying causes are there. And uh, this underlying cause is the violation of the human rights of the people of Nagorno-Karabakh, a party which is directly affected by the conflict. However, up to now, uh, we continue to face the destructive tense of Azerbaijan and uh, absence of any signs to engage within the framework of the OEC Minsk co-chairmanship to find a sustainable, just and lasting peace. Hmm. Uh, war, war is atrocious. It's barbarity is why international law and the United Nations has worked so hard to abolish the use of force. Mr. Kanazian, thank you so much for taking your time out today to speak to us on the matter of Nagorno-Karabakh. And with that, we'd like to end with your final thoughts on the situation in Artsakh in the context of international law. In case of any conflict, not only in Nagorno-Karabakh, the lasting peace requires restoration of human rights of all the people affected by the conflict from both sides of dividing lines. This is of utmost importance to pursue reconciliation, to restore confidence between the warring parties, and to prepare societies for peace. 
This requires long-standing efforts in line with the international humanitarian law and international human rights law. Uh, the history knows many examples when the former antagonists could achieve lasting peace by building trust, by supporting people-to-people -people contacts, dialogue between young people, turn the page of the grievances and to show the prospects of a future, a future where the communities, the societies will live side by side, peace, without the fear that there will be external pressure, there will be attempt to eliminate the, the population uh, to commit, to conduct atrocity crimes. And one of these fundamental human rights is the right to self-determination, which, as I mentioned, is a peremptory norm of international law. It cannot be limited to the period of colonialism. There is certain perception that this right was designed to allow the former colonies to gain independence. It is not the case. In the modern history, we have uh, many examples when the right to self-determination and its application was the basis for uh, reaching a sustainable peace, such as the East Timor case, uh, Eritrea, South Sudan. We see that how democratic countries, such as Canada, for instance, or United Kingdom, allow their societies to fully exercise their right to self-determination, to conduct plebiscites, to define whether they want to live in one family as one country or to live independently. Uh, regardless the results of these plebiscites, people are confident that their rights are, that they are fully entitled with their rights, that they, they, uh, they will not find themselves in a situation when there will be pressure uh, on them not to exercise their, their inalienable right, that there will be pressure to stay within the limits of one state. Because what matters for us in context of Nagorno-Karabakh, it's, it's not about territory, it's about the people, real people living on the territory. The conflict is about their rights. It's not a territorial dispute as some try to portray. It's not a territorial dispute between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Uh, throughout the history, starting from uh, 1918, when for the first time Azerbaijan attempted to uh, solve the issue, it was about exercise of the right of people to define their own future without uh, outside coercion. And we believe that all the conflicts, regardless, of course, each and, each and every conflict is unique, but what is common for uh, conflicts is that they have to be solved on the basis of international law, on the, on the basis of the purposes and principles of the Charter, of which are equal. There is no hierarchy of the principles of international law. One cannot say that territorial integrity is more important than the, the right to self-determination. All principles of international law have equal significance. Even more, the, the right of people to self-determination as a purpose of United Nations Charter, it's, it's a it's one of the cornerstones of the modern international law and we hope that eventually the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict will be resolved in a just manner on, on the basis of the UN Charter and the principles of international law, including that of the right to self-determination. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you too, dear colleagues. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure to follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter and subscribe to hear our future episode.
The very purpose which draws us together here, building a peaceful world, will be thwarted if a situation is accepted in which a government intervenes across its borders in the affairs of another with military force in violation of the United Nations Charter. We have to ensure the proper conditions for self-determination so that citizens of Crimea, well, it's a good thing that at least they remember there is such a thing as international law. We're of the view that UNSC was not the right forum for such issues and this should be discussed bilaterally between India and Pakistan. I've come here to tell the UN, you've got to, this is a test for the United Nations. You are the one who guaranteed the people of Kashmir the right of self-determination.